Hello and welcome back to this week's story, The Tale of Dylan Redwine, Part 2. Before I get going, I need to give another Patreon shout out to one that I seemingly overlooked. Sarah Rose signed up to support us on Patreon about a month or so ago, and I somehow missed it. And if anyone else has joined, or you joined a long time ago and you think you deserve another shout out, hit me up in Facebook Messenger. It's totally not a big deal. So thank you, Sarah, for supporting. And a couple more patrons made some moves. Sashi joined with an annual subscription. And Kathy S. paid off her year by going from monthly to annual also. Thank you all again so very much. You guys literally pay my rent. Seriously, I have no money. (laughs) And I wish I was joking. Anyway, let's get on with it. This is the second part of a two-part series. So if you have not listened to part one, you're going to want to pause this now. Listen to that one first. We are in the middle of the case timeline, so it will make more sense for you to hear that and then come back to this later. In the timeline, we left off around December 6th when law enforcement were finally considering Dylan's case to be one of foul play, not one of a teen that ran away from home, and a reward fund quickly reached $50,000 by January. And Mark Redwine, the missing boy's father, He reportedly made some inquiries about the reward fund, and I kind of suggested that he could have been trying to somehow make Dylan's location be known without giving himself away, but also trying to qualify for collecting the reward. I don't know if that's what he did or not. I just don't know what reasons Dylan's dad would be out there asking about the reward if he weren't trying to get his grubby hands on it. So let's pick up the timeline from there. And by the way, yesterday I tripped on my dog's leash and I fell a little bit sort of going up the stairs and I kind of landed on my elbow. So if I sound a little off or stiff, it's because I took some uh, ibuprofens. You know what I mean? Okay, so on Monday, February 4th, 2013, Corey Redwine, Dylan's older brother, organized a group of people to stand in front of Mark's house to picket his home, I guess, asking him to be more active in the search for Dylan and to start answering some tough questions. Mark was tipped off that Corey was planning this gathering, so the day before it happened, Mark left town and he wasn't home when Corey arrived with his group of supporters. Also on February 4th, a reporter named Melissa Blasius released an uncut interview with Mark. In it, he claimed that there were two places in his house that a person could get phone reception. The interviewer was in either one of those locations and her phone was ringing. So already Mark is starting to tell lies and untruths to even the reporters. Then in the interview, when Mark was talking about going to Dylan's friend's Nando's house, Mark said, blam, that was the first place I went. A major problem with Mark going to Nando's is that Dylan's plans all along were with Ryan and going to Ryan's grandmother's house. While Dylan and Ryan were making their plans, there was never a single mention of Nando's. In fact, on Dr. Phil, Mark said he doesn't even know where Nando lives. However, in this interview, he says it's the first place he went when he got to Bayfield. How could he possibly have known to go to Nando's house? 
Incidentally, while Mark was out running his errands in Durango the morning that Dylan went missing, Ryan texted Dylan at 10 a.m. telling him to come to Nando's, but he never received a response. So dreamers, the implication here is that if Mark had done something to harm Dylan, or if he had killed him, then we can assume that he was in possession of Dylan's cell phone and was the one who received and read that text from Ryan that said to come to Nando's. And that is the only way that Mark would have known that information. He would have absolutely no reason to have access to that information if Dylan was in possession of his phone. This means that Mark Redwine had Dylan's cell phone. Around the same time, Mark accepted an offer from a private investigator from the Front Range to work on this case. The Front Range is a mountain range in Colorado near the Wyoming border. Anyway, this investigator was the first that anyone knows of that publicly mentioned there being blood found in Mark's carpet in his house. This investigator only worked for a very short time on Dylan's case on Mark's behalf. According to the investigator, he wanted Mark to take a polygraph for him to be comfortable that Mark was, in fact, not involved with Dylan's disappearance, but Mark refused to take the polygraph. Mark also again inquired about how to obtain the reward money. So dreamers, for that to have happened again, it, it leads me to believe, it reinforces my theory that Mark wanted to set it up somehow for someone to find Dylan's remains so they could work together to try to get the reward money, which, if that is even remotely true, is just insane if you really think about it. While Mark is suspected of being involved in Dylan's disappearance, and those suspicions are only going to grow, they're never going to go away, can you imagine the nerve of this guy trying to figure out what he can do to call in a tip or have someone else call in a tip about where to find Dylan so they can get their grubby hands on that reward money? Don't worry, dreamers. You are going to find plenty more to dislike about Mark Redwine the more we get into the weeds here on this case. On February 6, 2013, Dylan would have turned 14 years old. Birthday vigils were held for Dylan in Monument, Bayfield, Denver. Those were the ones in Colorado, and there was one more held in New Mexico. Mark attended none of the vigils. Then, from February 18th through the 20th, everyone flew to Los Angeles to tape a segment about Dylan on the Dr. Phil show. Now, I have to tell you that this is one of the most impressive things about TZ's podcast, Tapes from the Dark Side. If you listen to part one, in the end, you heard a little bit of a promo from it. If you've ever tried to look for full episodes of Dr. Phil show online, archived ones, it's virtually impossible to find anything more than just a two or three minute clip. But if you listen to the second and third episodes of Tapes from the Dark Side, TZ actually dug around the internet so much looking for any source to be able to watch the full episode with Mark, Elaine, and Corey. He even tried to see if he could get the season on DVD, and he dug and dug and dug, and he was finally able to find the full version of the Dr. Phil show on the Wayback Machine. It was archived there for his viewing pleasure, and he has, in his second and third episodes, 
painstakingly edited together the entire confrontation between Mark, Elaine, Corey, and Dr. Phil, trying to mediate the whole thing. It was very emotional. So because I want you to go over to TZ's podcast, where you can listen to the whole Dr. Phil segment, I'm not going to go over any of that here. And you know I'm tempted to. I mean, if you listen to my eight-part series on Patreon... I had a couple full episodes dedicated to a Dr. Phil segment on the case that I covered in those eight parts, which was coincidentally out of the state of Colorado as well. I could not find the full segment of the show online either, but luckily I found a transcript of the show, which works just as well for me because I don't like to splice a bunch of audio clips together. So I ended up narrating the entire Dr. Phil conversation pretty much word for word as it went down, and I think it turned out all right, and I was able to interject with my own opinions. If I did that here, I would have to probably get it from TZ's podcast, so you might as well just go over there and listen to it for yourselves. Anyway, it was really excellent work on his part in bringing us that Dr. Phil segment in his show. It's the second and third episode in his series, Dr. Phil Showdown and The Big Lie. Anyway, you don't even have to see Mark Redwine's ugly face. You just have to listen to him talk to see that this guy is all kinds of messed up. He did not do himself any favors by going on the Dr. Phil show. And no, I'll just tell you now, they did not bring up the coprophilia pictures. If at some point in that episode it had been brought up it was edited out and it never aired elaine has a really hard time talking about it publicly though she has on trisha's true crime radio again in the same eight-part series on my patreon i talked in great detail about an appearance on her show as well she's the one with who runs web sleuths tz has a few audio clips from elaine and mark speaking to trisha griffith also The one thing that there isn't are any audio clips of anyone asking Mark about the pictures or Mark talking about them or addressing them. At least, not that I've seen. I guess it's kind of like this big elephant in the room. It gets talked about, but not directly to Mark, which is understandable. It's a way to guarantee that the guy is going to refuse to speak to you anymore, and he might even get violent especially if you're a reporter trying to get an interview with the guy. He seems like he wants to talk to the media, so you don't want to drive him away. But I think Mark needs to be drunk, high, heavily sedated, or all three in order to do it. But that's just an observation. Unless the guy just always sounds like he's checked out, or maybe that's his baseline, I don't know. There is something definitely going on with this guy like... The lights are on, but nobody's home, you know. He's kind of got that sort of a thing going on. At some unknown point in the timeline, a dog handler contacts law enforcement to inform them that she's being followed by someone and is worried. It comes to light that Mark had this dog search team followed by a friend of his while Mark was out of the area without the dog handler's knowledge. That is very, very suspicious and concerning, and I think Mark should have been tossed in the county jail for obstructing an investigation, but that's just my opinion. Okay, so while on the Dr. Phil show, Mark 
agreed to take a polygraph with Dr. Phil's polygrapher, Jack Tremarco, on the first day of their taping, but then Mark said he was too stressed and he didn't want to take it the first day, but agreed to do it the next morning. But the following day, Mark told Jack Tremarco that he did not feel well enough to take the test. When Jack asked him, do you feel well enough to take the test? If the answer is no, then this disqualifies them from taking it, which is what ended up happening. Mark said no and admitted to drinking a bottle of Jim Beam the previous evening. Mark has now bailed twice on taking the polygraph and he blamed Jack Tremarco for his failure to take the test because of the disqualifying question he asked. When Jack said, Mark, we can still do this. Do you want to do this? Mark said no. You can hear all of this exchange between Mark and Jack on TZ's podcast. This whole entire exchange, you can hear it all. During the interview part of day two on Dr. Phil, it became obvious to the family that Mark had done the unthinkable and had killed Dylan. The family felt that this was a turning point for them as it began to sink in that they are no longer looking for Dylan alive based on Mark's actions and answers to questions while on the Dr. Phil show. Honestly, dreamers, I'm fairly certain that Dylan's mom, brother, and stepdad already felt Mark was responsible. I mean, when they went on Dr. Phil, Elaine, she came out swinging. You could hear it on TZ's episodes. You will hear her beg and plead with Mark time and time again. Tell her where Dylan is. Tell me where he is. She demands it over and over again. Tell us where he is. And all he could say is he doesn't know and he has no answers. And Mark even has the audacity to try to accuse Elaine of doing away with her own son, if you can believe that. On February 22, 2013, two days after the Dr. Phil taping, a family member headed to Vallecito to meet up with the dog handler that had been there all week. The dog handler was asked if it was possible for the dogs to be able to detect the odor of human remains if holes were made in the frozen lake, and the answer was yes. The next day, February 23rd, the family arranged to have the lake sliced open in multiple places to see if the dogs could pick up any scent of human remains under the frozen lake. The dogs, according to the handler, did detect odor of human remains. This is now multiple dogs that have picked up the odor on the lake. At the end of this day, law enforcement is contacted informing them of the information. It was also communicated to law enforcement that the lake would be searched. The current investigator agreed that it was a good idea. The family looked for the best people in the United States to conduct the search of the lake. The family found a search team out of Idaho who conducted searches with the use of side sonar. Law enforcement is made aware by a family member that the family is asking this Idaho team to search the lake when the ice comes off and request their assistance. Law enforcement agree to help as it is a requirement of the search team that a representative from law enforcement be present while searching. On March 19, 2013, La Plata County law enforcement put out a press release that stated Mark and Dylan's interactions and activities within the community on November 18th and 19th, as well as tips related to persons, locations, and sightings remain under suspicion. 
Investigators ask for information from anyone who may have been at their Vallecito home or traveling in Vallecito between 7 p.m. on Sunday, November 18th and Monday, November 19th. They may have seen something and not realize that it is important to this case. This is the time frame between when Mark and Dylan left Walmart to about an hour and a half after Elaine reported Dylan missing. As many as seven media outlets report on this case, the spring thaw brings new hope and new searches. Media sources also stated that the lake would be searched by a special team. Mark later stated that he knew nothing of the searches, even though it was all over the media. I'm assuming he again doesn't participate, of course. Corey and Mark did have a confrontation about this on Dr. Phil, where Mark said that he has to work and Corey yells at him, you don't think I have to work too? It's very emotional. Corey straight up tells Mark to his face on Dr. Phil on national TV, I don't like you. And I have to hand it to that young man for not throwing those fetish pics in his dad's face on Dr. Phil. He may have, and it could have been edited out, but I don't think, I honestly don't think it happened because I don't think Mark would have continued to sit there in front of the audience if that actually got brought up. You can tell just by listening to the Dr. Phil audio that Corey is trying to help stand up for his brother and his mom, all of whom, all three of them, were probably bullied by Mark Redwine for far too many years. And unfortunately, what happened to Dylan was the worst of it. From April 15th through April 22nd, 2013, for the first three days, a canine was placed on a small boat close to the water to detect any type of human remains. All alerts were logged by GPS. All of that information then was downloaded into the computer of the boat with the side sonar. The side sonar boat searched for several days, but due to winds was unable to stay on the water for full days. There was a lot of activity by canines at the northeastern side of the lake and around the Middle Mountain campground to be exact. This is also the area where law enforcement built a dam searching for clues on April 21st. This area is not far from Mark's house and is close to Middle Mountain Road. And Dreamers Middle Mountain keeps getting brought up because it will become important soon enough. A note about these searches. Nobody that anyone knows of ever reported seeing Mark outside of his house during the search. He stated he was not aware of a search, although many media sources were reporting a search was going to take place. A helicopter was called in by law enforcement and flew very low over the lake and Mark's house. It was obvious to locals that something was going on, except for good old Mark, right? On April 22nd, early in the morning, Mark was spotted coming off Middle Mountain Road, and that information was reported to law enforcement. On May 20th, 2013, Mark Redwine wrote an open letter to the media. One of the only outlets to publish the letter was the Durango Herald, and I will tell you what the article said. It was written by Jordan Dahl entitled, Mark Redwine Knox Search. It read, Nearly six months after teenager Dylan Redwine was reported missing, his father, Mark Redwine, released a statement Friday criticizing how missing children's cases are handled by authorities and inviting Dylan's mom to mediation. Quote, I am asking that we stop and evaluate the process as a community 
to come up with a more productive approach in the search for Dylan and missing children across the country, unquote, he wrote in a statement. No child who is missing should have to wait for certain criteria to be met before the public is notified and an alert to be sent out. Redwine said in an interview Friday with the Durango Herald that no Amber Alert was issued when Dylan first went missing November 19th from the Vallecito area because the case did not meet the criteria for an Amber Alert. And as you all know, there needs to be a known abduction and usually a vehicle and a license plate attached to that abduction. Law enforcement has to confirm that the child has been abducted before issuing an Amber Alert and there was no indication that Dylan was abducted, so Mark Redwine's assertions here are fallacious. And Mark's letter continued, I firmly believe that the most critical time was in the first day or two or three, and that everything possible should have been done then. I think that not enough was done in that time frame. Um... Wasn't he the one telling law enforcement that Dylan probably ran away? I believe I'm remembering that right. And he actually kind of sort of had them believing that for about 10 days or so. So I don't know what the hell Mark Redwine is talking about here. What I think is, is he's feeling the noose tightening around his neck. And he's trying to blame law enforcement for not acting quickly enough early on when he was the one that misled them in the first place. Nice try, Mark. Now the whole town is looking for this kid, and he's got the nerve to not only not help, but to criticize everyone out there who's putting themselves at risk, their energy, their time, they're putting everything on the line. Give me a break. Everybody wants to find his son, and they know they are looking for bones, and they want to find him so that they can get this POS off the streets and in a 6x9 ASAP. No parent in their right mind is going to go to the media and criticize people searching for the damn missing kid, okay? No parent. We've seen parents beg for help. Mark Redwine is so stupid. Just his speed. Just zero to stupid the second he opens his mouth. God, he makes me mad. Anyway. Mark Redwine, in an interview with the Herald, also criticized how the investigation had been handled by the La Plata County Sheriff's Office, claiming that there is not a 50-person task force, but rather five investigators. Okay, so now he's saying the task force isn't big enough when he just said that they're wasting their time with these searches? Which is it, Mark? Too many searches and searchers or not enough? Get your damn story straight. You know what? I you can't blame the guy. His brain is probably as pickled as his liver by now. So this article continued. Redwine doesn't think that Dylan, age 13 when he disappeared, is in Vallecito or La Plata County. Okay, subtle way of trying to steer the investigation and the investigators away from him, but it's clearly not working. The closer they get, the more Mark comes forward to try and throw up roadblocks. How is it that nobody has walked up to this guy and just punched him in the face just for existing? Authorities searched Vallecito Reservoir again in April after search dogs picked up a scent by the lake. Redwine said, quote, How many times do you have to search the damn thing until you realize he's not in the lake? There's something in my gut that tells me that Dylan isn't anywhere in La Plata County. Okay, Redwine, what exactly is in your gut that's speaking to you? 
you know what? Don't even answer that question because I'm sure it is utter bullshit. Something tells me he's not in La Plata County. How the hell would he know unless he had something to do with it or he wants the searching around his area to stop? And to answer his question, how many times do you have to search the damn thing? Well, Mark, as many freaking times as it takes, asshole, as many times as it takes to find your son, you should be out there thanking these people, bringing them refreshments and bottles of water, helping to sustain these big hearted human beings that care enough about your son instead of getting on the damn news and telling them they're wasting their time looking for him. This is your son. You think I'm slightly annoyed by this guy? Go listen to Dylan's mom on Dr. Phil. It will shatter your heart listening to the sheer desperation from Mark to just come forward with the information that she knows he has. Mark's statement also included an invitation for mediation with Dylan's mother and his ex-wife, Elaine Hatfield. He said, I believe the more we all work together to bring Dylan home, the more successful his safe return will be. But Elaine says mediation isn't necessary. She has no qualms with speaking to him. He continues to say, let's go to mediation, but he hasn't done anything to start it. Frankly, I don't think we need one. Elaine said she thinks that law enforcement first dropped the ball in assuming that Dylan was a runaway, but that now she believes they're going in the right direction. You will hear in the Dr. Phil audio just how little Mark Redwine is willing to work with Elaine. He even goes so far as to block her phone number so she couldn't call or text him anymore. That's about how much he's willing to communicate with her. Yeah, he actually blocked Elaine's phone. On June 2nd and on June 9th, 2013, both Elaine and Mark appeared on Trisha's true crime radio show by calling in. Mark called in again on the 9th. He confirmed that he was irritated that Dylan would not go and sit down for dinner and that he wanted to go to McDonald's on November 18th, 2012. Mark stated that he searches, but he could not give any specific areas where he has searched, nor has anyone come forward saying that they have seen him searching. Mark has stated that he was instructed to stay home by law enforcement and to not search in the early days. We have found this to be a lie. And the following is a direct quote from Mark on Trisha's True Crime Radio. He said, Um, I won't say that he's happy, but I think that there was a, there was something on his mind. And in many ways, he was a little more distant with me than he might otherwise be. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. And obviously, I've had this conversation with law enforcement. And it was clear to me and it's clear to a lot of people that that there was something going on with him and I have no knowledge of what that is. And so, you know, I'm trying to make the most of that. And so I picked him up from the airport. That is a non sequitur if I ever heard one. And then Mark continued, you know, I mean, at this point, we are past the six month mark, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't believe Dylan's in the lake. I don't believe he's near my home. And he certainly, I don't think he's in La Plata County. And at that point, Trisha let Mark know that there was another search coming, a big search coming in June. The week of June 10th, 2013, 
two people going door to door distributing new flyers stopped at Mark's house to give him a new one since the one taped to his door is old. Mark accepted the new flyer and appears to be more concerned about exactly what day the search is going to begin. This is the second time Mark acknowledged that the search was coming again very soon. Mark was also informed by law enforcement that the search was coming in June, making that the third time Mark was made aware of an upcoming search. And then, on or about June 19, 2013, Mark left the area without informing law enforcement that he was leaving or that he would not be present for the search of Middle Mountain. The search started on June 22. A couple of days later, Mark was located in Denver. He stated that he was unaware of the search. He stated that he could not go back because of a fire on Wolf Creek Pass that is preventing him from going to Vallecito. There are two alternate routes to get back. One of these routes goes through Grand Junction and over Red Mountain Pass. Mark has been known to use that route when going or returning from Denver. Mark stated that he is on a quote-unquote crusade of the lower 48 to get the word out about Dylan. He stated that he is going to talk to the media during this crusade. We have found no such source or link to support that he's ever talked to anyone during this so-called crusade of his. On June 22, 2013, the search of Middle Mountain began. Numerous law enforcement agencies from La Plata County, Durango, Bayfield, Ignacio, as well as people from local fire departments and several resources from outside the area have all come together for a massive search for Dillon. This was the most impressive organized search the area had ever seen. Dillon's immediate family was present for this search, but Mark's location, once again, was unknown. On either June 24th or June 25th, Mark was located in Indiana and was told by law enforcement to return home. He stated that he drove straight through from Indiana to La Plata County. Just days prior to this, Mark said he couldn't get back to Durango for the biggest search to date for his son because of a fire that had closed Wolf Creek Pass, that being the direct route. The Wolf Creek Pass route, according to MapQuest, is 337 miles or 542 kilometers. Another route Mark had been known to take to Denver, which is over Red Mountain Pass, which was open, would have been 411 miles or 661 kilometers. So Mark can't drive an extra 80 miles to search for his son, but had no problem driving about 1,400 miles or 2,250 kilometers to get where he was located in Indiana? Mark is quoted as saying that he made the trip from Indiana to Durango in less than 30 hours. How much less? Seems like a substantially longer amount of time than it would have taken Mark to return to Durango, especially after authorities told him he needed to come back. Why? Well, I can answer that question. It's because he knows that people are getting closer and closer to discovering what has happened to Dylan. And that is exactly what did happen. On June 26, 2013, authorities informed the family members what they had found, which were some remains that they confirmed to belong to Dylan. Shortly after authorities met with Mark and to notify him about the discovery of Dylan's remains, 
Mark sent a text to Elaine's phone that stated, Gloves are off now. I can tell the world what fucktards you and your colon-cancer-riddled BFF are. I hope she rots in hell and you get cancer too and join her. That was at 3.15 p.m., immediately after Mark left the sheriff's office after having learned that Dylan's remains were discovered. On June 28, 2013, the La Plata County authorities confirmed to the media that they are looking for a killer in the death of missing teenager Dylan Redwine. In part, the statement said, The information we have is that there is no reason for Dylan to go to Middle Mountain and there is no indication he did this on his own. Also noted is that death by wild animals had been ruled out. Although it had been stated by authorities, Mark also confirmed in a recent interview that the area Dylan's remains were found in overlooks Mark's home and that Mark can see the area from his front porch. Mark also stated that the area that the remains were found in is approximately 10 miles or 16 kilometers from Mark's house, but as the crow flies, it's only about a mile or 1.6 kilometers. Mark has stated in the past, but prior to Dylan's remains being found, that Mark talks to Dylan every day. I suppose that's to insinuate that Mark can sit on his front porch. He can look up at the mountain at the exact place where Dylan's remains lay and curse him for bringing him all of these problems into his life. On July 14, 2013, Mark recorded four short videos of Middle Mountain and makes those videos public. The videos include Mark's commentary regarding the terrain and the likelihood of Dylan going up there. Mark stated how the terrain is not hard to navigate. He stated that it certainly does not require ropes. He stated this knowing that law enforcement had to use ropes when Dylan's remains were found. Mark then drove up and walked down the mountain. Why did Mark not walk up the mountain from his house as he claims Dylan could have? Well, that's because Mark Redwine is trying to manipulate things here. He's trying to show things that are going to benefit him. He's not going to try to show things that are going to implicate himself even further. That's why. On July 16th or 17th, Mark's Facebook support page called Find Dylan first posts that Mark found Dylan's fishing pole in his garage under his ATV. This is the fishing pole searchers had been on the lookout for going on eight months. This is the fishing pole that Mark argued with his son Corey over that its place was by the TV in the house, although Corey stated in February that it would be in the garage. This confrontation about the fishing pole also happens on the Dr. Phil show, I believe. A task force of 50 CBI and FBI agents on day 10 with a search warrant were in Mark's house for 10 to 12 hours, yet none of these professionals noticed a fishing pole under the ATV. Typically, searches like this of the entire home are photographed first and then tested and then taken apart. Do you think those photos will show the fishing pole under the ATV, as Mark apparently told his Facebook supporters? Okay, what the author of this timeline is trying to say here about the fishing pole, and this is just my conjecture. Mark told law enforcement early on that among the things missing from his home was Dylan's fishing pole. 
I believe this was to throw off the investigation, to give the impression that Dylan may have gone fishing at the lake and then something befell him. So they were looking for this fishing pole and they searched the lake extensively early on. So Mark needed to make the fishing pole disappear. And then suddenly, after Dylan is found up the mountain, his fishing pole suddenly reappears and it just so happened to be overlooked by a large team of very qualified searchers from the FBI and the CBI. The insinuation is, is that Mark planted the fishing pole under the ATV to make it seem like it was there the whole time when he honestly thought Dylan took it with him to go fishing and that he just so happened to run across it. That's why the fishing pole he thought was missing was never missing at all, which is why the searchers never found it. So we see the gears here turning in Mark's head where he's trying to do damage control to make sure all the bits and pieces of his story fit together well, and they just aren't. On August 14, 2013, Mark's home is searched again pursuant to a search warrant. An article about the case stated, Mark Redwine said investigators from multiple law enforcement agencies came to his door with a search warrant Wednesday afternoon. They spent three hours at his home, which is near Vallecito Lake in southwestern Colorado. Redwine says the investigators removed sections of carpet and wood flooring. He said they took a fireplace poker, clothing, and a cell phone. Redwine said deputies also dug a hole in his yard underneath an outdoor staircase. This is the third time law enforcement agents have searched through the Vallecito area house looking for clues. On November 16, 2013, a memorial service was held for Dylan Redwine. The Durango Herald article about it read in part, Elaine Hatfield said, This past year has been a struggle. I've struggled with the events that have taken place and what has happened to Dylan. She also said that she has struggled with hope. I've lost faith and I've regained faith. Without faith, I have nothing to look forward to and I need that. Her words were met with more tears, her own and those of many others in the sanctuary. She continued, I've learned that while there is tragedy and while there is evil in this world, there is also an enormous amount of humanity and kindness left as well. That is indicated by all of you sitting here. You've touched our lives and I know that Dylan has touched yours. A larger-than-life portrait in his baseball uniform, ready to swing, stood near the podium. His team jersey, number 19, was encased in glass underneath a mounted baseball from his school team. For now, Dylan's mother, brother, friends, and family have a place to remember him. The bench, in lieu of a tombstone, reads, Our home run in life, and now our angel in the outfield. Underneath is lined with handwritten messages, written on stones, by those close to him. Mark Redwine was not present at Dylan's memorial. On February 5, 2014, Mark's Dodge truck was seized by law enforcement. This all seems to be going kind of slow, doesn't it? I mean, Mark is making many strategic counterstrikes, but you're going to come to find that this case against Mark is going to move at a snail's pace for some reason. And I really don't know if there is any one thing that can be pointed to as being the reason for that. 
Mark said he doesn't understand why his Dodge was seized because he was driving his Chevy truck when he picked up Dylan from the airport on November 18, 2012. On March 31, 2014, Mark took Elaine to court seeking compensation for tens of thousands of dollars in damages he says happened to his windmill home. Mark stated that Elaine caused all these damages and provided his attorney receipts that he paid in order to go after Elaine. Some background information related to ownership of the windmill house. Elaine turned the home over to Mark on June 30th, 2012 during the divorce proceedings. It is now known that Mark turned in an insurance claim for some water leak damage at the windmill home, which occurred only 30 days after he took possession. Mark's attorney was directly asked before March 31, 2014, if any of the money Mark was seeking was related to the insurance claim, and Mark's attorney responded as follows. With regard to the house damages, I have extensive documentation, much of which has been provided. We can also have Durango Property Management testify at the final hearing as to the damages if necessary. I confirmed with Mark that none of the insurance claim damages were being attributed to Elaine or Sot. They were caused by water damage when movers disconnected the water line to the refrigerator. Mark is not seeking to double dip or charge Elaine for anything that is not her responsibility. The court did hear testimony from Durango Property Management. In that testimony, it was determined and acknowledged by both sides and the court that Mark did in fact submit receipts, which the insurance company already paid him for and now is seeking to collect those same amounts from Elaine. Out of the almost $20,000 Mark was seeking to collect in damages, he was awarded $75 because Elaine forgot to leave the garage door remote on the counter when she moved out. On the dates of April 29th and May 3rd, 2014, around a month after the court hearing in March, where Mark was suing Elaine for damages and won that whopping $75, Mark had traveled to Denver stopping in Grand Junction along the way. Mark had taken this particular route to get to Denver in 2014, but this, he wouldn't use the same route to return to the Durango area in June of 2013 in order to participate in that big search for Dylan. Remember, he used the excuse that there was a fire that had closed down the most direct route. I keep going back and forth between route and route, and I'm sorry if that's annoying anybody, but it sure as heck is annoying me because... I can't figure out which one I want to stick with. Anyway, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, he's taking the route that he said that he didn't want to take to get back to the search for Dylan. And let's not forget the fact that Mark is a truck driver by trade, a long distance truck driver at that. If you listen to TZ's podcast, you will hear Mark giving an interview where he made this whole big deal about his willingness to drive Dylan anywhere he wanted to go in the contiguous United States in order to visit every single professional baseball stadium. He talked about going to visit a stadium in Chicago, and he talked about visiting the stadium in New York. And in both of those places, they stopped and had authentic-style pizzas from both of those cities, which they are famous for. Mark acted like this was such a big deal, and he was such the cool dad to want to do this, but... I don't think it was as big a deal as Mark made it out to be. For one, he's used to driving long distances. 
He must do it because he's physically and mentally capable of that sort of long haul trucking, but also because there's a part of him that likes that sort of work for whatever reason, whether it's good money or he likes to be on the road or be on the move or see the country, whatever. That's what he does. So taking his son for a drive doesn't come off as that big of a deal as he made it out because it's what he does. It's what he likes and he benefits from the fun of it too. And it's quite possible that he made these trips with his rig, right? Like he was working. And why not piggyback it with a fun road trip with his son and make himself out to be like the super dad who would drive coast to coast with his son Dylan in order to make his dreams come true. But it's probably just as much Mark's dream as it was his son. Otherwise, I don't think Mark would do it. This is just a thing that Mark had brought up. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. But also in TZ's podcast, he talks about the Boston Red Sox being Dylan's favorite team. So I can't understand why Mark would take him to see Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, but would not drive the extra 200 miles or 321 kilometers to Fenway Park in Boston. Is 200 miles or 321 kilometers extra a lot to drive? Kind of, yeah. There's a direct route between the two stadiums. Well, that distance may seem like a lot, but relatively speaking, it's not. Because if they came from Bayfield, Colorado, that's 2,245 miles or 3,613 kilometers away. Another 200 miles or 321 kilometers is not going to matter unless Mark was working and he had his truck with him and wasn't permitted to drive any further than his destination, right? He would have had a GPS on it and he just couldn't make it to his son's all-time favorite team stadium just a couple more hours away in an already 34-hour drive. That's why I think Mark didn't make these drives out of the goodness of his heart or his desire to have a genuine father-son road trip. I think he made these drives for work and brought his son along with him to make a token father-son moment that made Mark appear to be a fun-loving, attentive dad. If this was truly a trip for Dylan, they would have gone all the way to Fenway Park, to Dylan's all-time favorite team in Boston. While Boston isn't known for its pizza, there were certainly a number of classic traditional dishes in Boston that they are famous for that they could have tried together. But no, he took them to Yankee Stadium instead. In an interview, Mark said he has no idea why Dylan picked Boston as his team, which to me is kind of telling as to how little Mark really did know about his son. For example, my husband is or maybe was, it might be past tense now, a lifelong fan of the Miami Dolphins. Why? He is battle-born and raised in Nevada, a native of Las Vegas. Why the hell would he latch on to a team that has sucked so bad during the Tom Brady era in the AFC East for just about his entire adult life? Well, it's because his grandmother lives near Miami, and when he was a kid, he got to see the Dolphins play while Dan Marino was still their quarterback. And that was it. He was sold on being a Miami fan. Much to his misfortune, right? 
Well, as you know, we're both back in the Vegas area now, so he's migrated over to Raider Nation, but he still has a special place in his heart for the Dolphins, who might have a fighting chance now that Tom Brady is down in Florida too, across the way over in Tampa Bay, still winning Super Bowls apparently. Anyway, my point is, I have a plausible explanation as to why my husband has seemingly chosen a rando team to love, but Mark has no clue as to why Dylan chose the Red Sox. Could it be perhaps his favorite team had won two World Series championships in 2004 and 2007 when Dylan was still a young kid and perhaps the Red Sox were just a really popular team and he latched onto them? Simple as that. They were a popular team. And an added layer of this already sad story, Dylan, of course, who went missing in 2012, well, less than a year later, he would miss his favorite team winning the World Series in 2013. In another article in the Durango Herald, it was brought up how much of a fan of Tim Tebow that Dylan was. Uh, yeah, Tim Tebow. <laughs> Remember that guy? He played for like a minute. But anyway, he was the Denver Broncos' first-round pick in the 2010 draft. But when Tebow was traded to the New York Jets just two years later in 2012, Dylan dropped his beloved Denver-Colorado team and became a fan of the Jets just because of Tim Tebow. All of this is to say is that Mark should have known his son well enough to know why he settled on being a fan of the Boston Red Sox. And if they wanted to take selfies at every stadium in the country and they came within a couple hours drive of his favorite team stadium when they were 34 hours away from home, I can't think of any plausible reason for Mark to not have wanted to do that for Dylan, except for this being about Mark. Okay, back to the timeline. On April 29, 2014, Mark purchased a high-powered hunting rifle. It is said that there are some YouTube videos about this rifle that he purchased and how accurate this particular rifle is and has a relatively good customer rating. After that, Mark drove to Sportsman's Warehouse to purchase the ammunition for his rifle. The reason that all of this is suspicious is because the ammunition he purchased was available at the same place where he purchased the rifle. They confirmed that the exact same ammunition was there in their store, in stock, on the shelves, on the day that Mark bought that rifle. Why did he purchase the ammunition at a different place than where he got the rifle? Okay, dreamers, I'm not quite sure of the answer to this. I thought that maybe there could have been a couple reasons. Maybe he forgot to purchase ammunition. Maybe he thought he'd get a better deal at Sportsman's Warehouse. And I wonder if there were other things that Mark wanted to pick up at the warehouse and he just decided to get the ammunition there instead of at the gun store. I don't know. It seems suspicious on the surface. But if Mark is an avid hunter, there might be some logical explanation for it. But I understand the suspicions here. On May 3rd, 2014, Mark went to Denver and at an intersection in Denver, he called a local TV reporter at KUSA named Melissa Lazius. The following day, she ran a news story about the conversation she had with Mark when he made that call. She said that Mark told her that he thought the police were surrounding him and that they were going to arrest him for Dylan's death. When the police responded, they located Mark, 
They did not find a weapon on him, but he did have two guns in his truck. Later on that same day, he told KUSA that he had been released from the hospital and that he was experiencing some sort of paranoia. Mark attributed his feelings to being stalked by haters, being monitored by police, as well as his own attempts to self-medicate. At some point, some spent shell casings were found in his vehicle from his newly purchased hunting rifle. Two days later, Allen officially filed a request for a civil protection order in the El Paso County Court. She was granted a temporary restraining order against Mark Redwine. Authorities next looked for Mark in order to serve him with the paperwork. So the insinuation here is that Mark had purchased this long-range rifle perhaps to try and harm Elaine with it from a faraway distance. Okay, so the person who wrote this timeline where I'm getting this information from, I don't know exactly who wrote it, but it sounds like it was either Elaine herself, Dylan's mother, or someone very close to her. But next it reads, before getting into the details relating to this restraining order, I just want to point out some facts. In custody court in September of 2012, Dylan spoke to the judge, and the judge stated that his conversation with Dylan had been taken into his ruling. Mark was not awarded custody. In fact, his custody was reduced. He no longer had joint custody. The judge ruled that Elaine was to have primary custody of Dylan. Mark was also ordered by the court to submit his financial information so that child support could be assessed. Mark was collecting child support from Elaine up to this point despite the fact that Mark rarely utilized his parenting time, as stated in court documents. Mark next purchased Dylan a one-way ticket to Durango for November 17, 2012. This was the same day another motion Mark had filed was ruled against in court, though the court stated Dylan would be with Mark for the Thanksgiving holiday. Mark had zero communication with Dylan from the day that the court ruling was made on September 12th, until the day he got to his dad's on November 17th. Within four hours of being with his father, all communication from Dylan's electronic devices ceased. Dylan is missing, and this is just days before Mark was to provide his financial information to the court in order for child support to be assessed. At a court hearing about the protection order, he said that the hunting rifle was for protection. But Mark already owned a 380 pistol, which was found in his vehicle, and he had a loaded shotgun in his house that a reporter noted seeing on his kitchen table while interviewing Mark in February of 2013. He explained to the reporter that the shotgun was for protection. So why would he need to purchase such a high-powered hunting rifle? A hunting rifle fully capable of killing a target as far away as a mile, possibly even further. Who would be a threat from that distance that would require Mark to need such a rifle? Remember, Mark had wished Elaine was dead, referring back to his text message about her best friend having colon cancer and that he wished Elaine would get cancer and die too. Mark had also sent a text message that if he comes to Elaine's home, he will not just be sitting in his truck. He referenced a breakdown that he had in Denver, which he said was a result of his attempts at self-medication. Taking this information into consideration, we are left wondering, is Mark Redwine a serious threat to Elaine? 
On June 11, 2014, a hearing was held in El Paso County regarding a permanent restraining order against Mark. The judge in the case ruled that due to the time frame that the witnesses who were being submitted to the court by Elaine's attorney would not be allowed to testify, including a mental health expert that studied Mark's behavior, the request for a permanent restraining order was denied by the judge. This was not the same judge that issued the temporary restraining order. From that point, Mark had been known to send various text messages indicating his intentions to go to Elaine's house. And you're going to kind of notice that Mark is not being arrested. And as a matter of fact, he wouldn't be arrested for quite some time, but I will get to that. A photographer from the Durango Herald outside of Mark's house witnessed somebody drive by his house, turn around and drove by again and yelled murderer and then drove away again. So as you can imagine, the ensuing months and years are not going to be fun for Mark Redwine. So in all of this mess, the one thing that Mark was right about was that he was certain that Dylan wasn't in the lake. If you recall, the early searches were concentrated there using the boats equipped with the sonar specifically for these kinds of searches where they were looking for clandestine burial sites. In addition to sonar-equipped boats, they searched the shoreline more than a dozen times with dogs and divers and helicopters and aircraft. Hundreds of tips came in across the United States and from all around the world, including psychics and people who thought they saw Dylan in foreign countries. And all the while, what was left of Dylan was on that mountainside all along. Another year and a half after Dylan's initial remains were found, Dylan's skull was discovered about a half mile from where the other remains were found. It was at this point that they were able to finally rule Dylan's death a homicide because his skull had injuries indicative of Dylan having suffered some sort of blunt force trauma in two places. The remains that were found first were unable to provide any clues as to the manner in which Dylan was murdered but the skull gave definitive proof that he was bashed in the head with a blunt object. That's what this man did to his 13-year-old son, bashed him in the head. But it would take another two years before Mark would actually be arrested. Mark Redwine was finally charged with second-degree murder and child abuse, knowingly and recklessly resulting in death. And I will read to you portions of his indictment. Dylan Redwine was last seen alive on November 18, 2012, when he arrived by plane on a court-ordered visit to visit his father, Mark Redwine. He was 13 years old. He was uninjured when he boarded the airplane. After his arrival, they stopped at Walmart, McDonald's, and then returned to Mark Redwine's house. Surveillance video from the airport and Walmart show little to no personal interaction between Mark and Dylan. Dylan was never seen or heard from again. Mark and Dylan had argued and fought on their previous visit. They had not been getting along leading up to the court-ordered visit, and several witnesses stated that Dylan did not want to visit Mark. Text messages indicated that Dylan had asked to stay with a friend rather than his father the same night of his arrival, a request that was denied by Mark. Dylan made specific plans to visit the friend's house the next morning at 6.30 a.m., Dylan's last phone activity or communication with anyone was at 9.37 p.m. on November 18, 2012. At 2 a.m. on November 19, 2012, Mark's neighbor, Carrie Cochran, observed his exterior porch light on. 
and later that morning, when it was still dark out, she observed the light off. When Dylan did not arrive at his friend's house, his friend sent a text to Dylan at 6.46 a.m. asking, where are you? He received no response. Dylan's blood was found in multiple locations of Mark's living room, including on the couch, the floor in front of the couch, the corner of the coffee table, the floor beneath the rug, and on a love seat. DNA testing showed that Dylan was a source of the blood on the love seat and could not be eliminated as a contributor to the mixture found in the blood found on the couch, the floor in front of the couch, the corner of the coffee table, and the blood found beneath the rug. The home had been severely damaged by fire, and a remodel of the home was completed in March of 2012. According to Mark, Dylan had limited visitations after the home remodel and had not suffered an injury that caused any bleeding during those visits after the home had been remodeled before November of 2012. On August 5, 2013, human remains detection dog handler Karen Cochran and her canine Molly conducted a canine search of Mark's house to determine if the corpse of a dead human had been present at that location. Canine Molly indicated the presence of a cadaver scent in various locations in the home, including the living room and in the washing machine. These are indications of the presence of a large source of human remains. Also in August of 2013, Ms. Cochran and her canine Molly searched and indicated a cadaver scent on Mark's clothes that he had been wearing on the night of November 18th into the 19th of 2012. Later, on February 13, 2014, Ms. Cochran and her canine Molly conducted a search of Mark's Dodge truck and alerted to the presence of human cadaver scent in several locations, including the bed of the truck. In June of 2013, some of Dylan's remains were located about eight miles up Middle Mountain Road from Mark's house, roughly one mile past the gate, which closes seasonally around November 30th every year and only 100 yards or so directly off an ATV trail. Mark had an ATV in his garage and was familiar with Middle Mountain Road. A witness observed Mark driving down from the gate in April of 2013, yet he left town and did not attend the search for Dylan in June of 2013 when the gate opened. On November 1, 2015, hikers further up Middle Mountain Road found Dylan's skull. On foot, the location was roughly 1.5 miles away from the first recovery site, though through very difficult terrain, but it was much more easily accessible by Middle Mountain Road, consistent with a human moving it. According to Lyle Wilmart, a wildlife officer with the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Division who has extensive experience with wildlife in the area, no animal known to the area would transport a body up the mountain from Mark's residence to the recovery site. Furthermore, no animal known to the area would transport the skull an additional 1.5 miles through the terrain to where the skull was found. Forensic anthropologists determined that Dylan's skull had injuries consistent with blunt force trauma at two locations. According to forensic archaeologists, the skull had two markings consistent with tool marks from a knife not caused by an animal or natural causes. These defects in Dylan's skull were perimortem, meaning recently dead or about to be dead, indicating that the bone still had characteristics of wet bone similar to a recently dead person. 
On June 27, 2013, immediately following the notification to mark that Dylan's first remains had been located, Dylan's half-brother, Brandon Redwine, reported an odd conversation with Mark. Specifically, Mark had mentioned blunt force trauma several times and discussed how investigators would have to find the rest of the body, including the skull, before they could determine if this was the cause of death. Within days of Dylan's disappearance, but months before his remains were located, investigators interviewed Mark's ex-wife, Bessie Horvath. Ms. Horvath voiced concern that Mark may have hurt Dylan. She reported that Mark had previously said that if he had to get rid of a body, he would leave it out in the mountains. Also during their divorce and custody proceedings, Mark repeatedly violated the custody agreement and told Ms. Horvath that he would kill the kids before he would let her have them. Miss Horvath's sister, Sandy Lang, heard the threat. At the time of the murder, Mark and Elaine Redwine were in the middle of an intensely contested custody case regarding Dylan. Mark acknowledged that he had left a contempt of court accusation on the kitchen table where Dylan may have seen it and could have become upset. Throughout 2012, Dylan expressed that he was upset with Mark and that he did not want to visit and was uncomfortable with Mark. Earlier in the year, Dylan had seen compromising pictures of Mark. At the time, he was upset by the manner in which Mark was talking about his brother and his mother. Dylan asked his brother, Corey, to send the pictures to him so that he could confront Mark. Later, Corey told Mark that he complied with Dylan's request for the pictures. Very shortly after Dylan's death was confirmed, two of Elaine's friends argued with Mark outside of his house. When these same pictures were referenced, Mark immediately reacted violently by picking up a log and raising it over his head in an attack gesture and approached them, causing them to drive off. Mark Redwine had 13-year-old Dylan in his custody and was alone with him the last night Dylan was heard from, November 18, 2012, at 9.37 p.m. Dylan's blood was in the living room, Cadaver dogs indicated that a deceased person had been in his living room and in the bed of his truck. Dylan's remains were located in a location accessible and familiar to Mark, and their relationship was contentious at the time of Dylan's death. At least one point of contention between them provoked a violent response from Mark Redwine. When locations of the remains were consistent with tampering with the body, and specifically relocation and further disposal of the fractured skull to conceal the identity and cause of death by the person last associated with Dylan. All offenses against the peace and dignity of the people of the state of Colorado. For those of you who have been following this case, and for those of you who might be hearing this for the first time, you might be wondering why it took four and a half years to arrest Mark Redwine. When it finally happened in July of 2017, they wanted answers. The community wanted answers. According to an article in the Daily Review, it quoted the sheriff as saying, the loss of this young man has been very traumatic for our community. And I believe we all share in the grief that Dylan's mother, Elaine, and all of his loved ones are experiencing. After four and a half years, I know many of you are asking questions about the length of the investigation, but I believe it tells a powerful story itself. This team put countless hours ensuring that no stone was left unturned, literally, 
because they were committed to finding justice for this 13-year-old young man who lost his life over the Thanksgiving holiday in 2012. And of course, Mark Redwine pleaded not guilty to the charges, standing by his claims of innocence over the years. Mark's trial began late October of 2020. According to the ABC News affiliate in La Plata County, the more than three years of delays since Mark was arrested ranged from the arrest of his attorney to disputes over pretrial motions and, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. The jurors were to be selected by November 6th and opening statements beginning on November 9th, 2020. And the judge fully expected there to be a verdict in this case by December 11th. And then the thing we had been dealing with for almost all of 2020 stepped in and caused even further delays. Coronavirus. On November 9th, when opening statements were slated to begin, the judge went ahead and declared a mistrial after Mark's defense lawyers said members of their team had COVID-19 symptoms. His two public defenders asked for a mistrial because of the need to quarantine. The lead prosecutor on the case raised the possibility that the defense team is trying to intentionally delay the trial, explaining that one of the defense attorneys was seen with another person with no mask on during a time when he was supposed to be in quarantine. Leading up to the trial, Mark's defense attorneys tried multiple times to delay the trial, bringing up concerns about the pandemic, all of which were denied. The trial was going to move forward. The judge ended up declaring a mistrial later that afternoon, stating in part, the court, for the reasons stated on the record and without making any findings as to the veracity of the allegations, finds that even if such allegations are true, the court has no choice but to declare a mistrial to ensure that Mr. Redwine has effective assistance of counsel. I should also tell you that previous testings for the coronavirus the defense attorneys were subjected to all came up negative during their previous attempts at delaying the trial. Dylan's mom did speak and implored the judge to allow for the trial to move forward, that this has victimized them over and over again since 2012, a total of eight years. The trial was pushed back to January 25th, 2021, but according to an article on 9news.com, at a pre-trial hearing on January 6, 2021, the trial was delayed again, this time to April 12th. There will be a pre-trial conference hearing set for March 5th. The article also outlined the various delays more specifically. The first time was in November of 2018, while the judge took time to rule on a number of pre-trial motions. Another trial date that was set in September of 2019 was postponed again after Mark's attorney was arrested on assault and domestic violence charges. An April 2020 trial was postponed because of COVID-19. And of course, the trial, which was underway, ended up being a mistrial because, again, of COVID-19. I'm not sure how these delays benefit Mark or his attorneys or if they're just trying to put some time and space between Mark and the crime to wait for the furor over this to diminish. I don't even know if that's possible, especially within the state of Colorado, within the community. So we're just going to have to wait and see what is in store next for Mark Redwine. 
can any of you begin to even imagine what it would be like to be Dylan? Being ordered by the court to go and spend the Thanksgiving holiday away from his mother and brother, to go spend it with this man who Dylan found pictures of doing unthinkable things. They're so disgusting, I'm not even going to make fun of it like I normally would in the past. There are so many names that I'd like to be calling Mark Redwine, but he isn't even worth the time. I know we all must be thinking, how could that judge make that ruling, ordering Dylan to go to his dad's for Thanksgiving? It pains me to think about all of the what-ifs and the we-should-haves and the if-onlys that could be spoken of that decision. Millions of times over, we can sit here and ask those questions. And I can't imagine how many times Elaine may have wondered the same thing, if only. I wonder if it has caused the judge who made that ruling question his or her decisions and if it will have an effect in the future when taking the wishes of a 13-year-old into consideration. Are compromising pictures enough to deny parenting time? I'm not going to sit here and criticize the judge and the decision to send Dylan to his dad's. Nobody, and I mean nobody, thought Dylan would end up dead and dumped on a mountainside, most likely by his father. Nobody could have foreseen that occurring. Not the judge, not Elaine, no one. And they're going to make themselves bonkers if they beat themselves up over this, and none of it is ever going to change what happened or bring Dylan back. The only thing they can do is hope for this to be the last of the delays so that justice can finally be had for Dylan. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>